Hey, this is the Amazing Spider-Man, sometimes known as the Spectacular Spider-Man. Hey, you know, in any case, it's Spider-Man. And when I'm swinging around New York, I love to listen to the Amazing Spider talk, mostly because they're talking about me. And, you know, it's not J. Jonah Jameson, because when he talks about me, it's, you know, different. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle the amazing spider the amazing spider come swing the air sit back and prepare for the amazing spider Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And I'm the mischievous Mark Chinacchio, founder of the Chase and Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for the first episode of the third season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Dan, we finally made it. It's season three. I know. I know. We weren't lying. This is, we were going to do it at some point. I mean, I'm just, I'm just glad that it's, it's, we're in a new year, new beginnings, and you know, we're all still here to talk about Spider-Man. That's the important thing, right? And for me, it is. and you know maybe we should tell everyone what this third season is going to be about so um for the record in this third season of the all-new amazing spider talk we're going to be talking about our favorite web web slinger in the beginning of the bronze age a time period that is known for its darker tone and sometimes outlandish stories to say the least uh, but before we get there, we're going to spend this episode looking into the rocky transition that saw Stan Lee leave the book, Roy Thomas take over briefly, and eventually Jerry Conway taking over as the official Spider-Scribe. If you haven't listened to our 12th episode of Season 2 titled Goodbye Spider-Dad, that had the interview with Roy Thomas in it that's going to serve as a really excellent starting point for this conversation. So go back and listen to that, and then come back and listen to us again. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Mark. And uh, as always, this episode wouldn't be possible without support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers, whose patronage allows us to assemble all the guests we have on the show and do all of our research. So if you enjoy the show and want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. And I will say... All of our Patreon subscribers hang around to the end of the episode, and there's an announcement we're making about our next big Patreon artist for the show. So just hang around at the end of the show. Excellent. Well, uh, before we do that, Dan, let's let's uh, go and thank our Patreon subscribers who made this particular episode thank, uh, possible. Uh, thanks to the following for joining our team, starting with Jason Combs. Fernando Correa. Uh, Ryan. Kieran Westfall. Rob Lowe. Do we have a celebrity sighting, Dan? (laughs) (laughs) I think so. And uh, Kyle Whitehouse. It's a different kind of celebrity. 
<laughs> now let's go into the action. We hope you enjoy our episode entitled The Amazing Spider Slump. ask you this. Do you have any feelings about the future of comics? We know where we are today. Is it a feel that's going to stay the same? Is it going to, are people going to lose interest? Do you think it'll grow? Where do you think I we're think going? the interest in comics is probably in many ways at an all-time high, uh, especially among the older age groups uh, from the late teens on up through the 20s and 30s and, and even older as more and more people mature who grew up, like myself, reading comic books. Uh, but the, the problem is, is that, you know, as you know better than I do, even uh, printing costs and things have grown up so much that the regular 32-page comic, I think, is un increasingly untenable. And I think that the, the directions you're going with the, the books, the expensive books, uh, both the reprints and eventually original material and things of this sort, this is the real answer, is a more expensive and therefore even higher quality product in printing and probably in the amount of time and work we can put into it. And that's what I really want to see comics become, to the point where it's sold in bookstores and uh, it's completely legitimatized. We already know that the material is at least reasonably good and has a lot of potential. We just have to convince the rest of the world about it. And we're doing that, I think, slowly and surely. And, and uh, you... We're trying. Yeah, and, and Marvel Comics, as, you know, and I say this as a person who came in four years after it started, uh, you know, it's probably had more to do that with that than anything else. Well, I too would hope that the day will come when uh, our books are sold in hardcover editions and nobody would think there's anything strange or unusual about it. So, Mark, it's the 1970s. We're talking about Spider-Man now. What was going on with Spider-Man in the early 1970s? Not much or maybe a lot, depending on your perspective, Dan. Um, so, you know, as we noted in our, our season finale in season two, Stan Lee had uh, left the book and left his, his perch as editor-in-chief of Marvel to become publisher of Marvel. But it really was just kind of an excuse for Stan to kind of leave the, the back offices and try and push the brand of Marvel uh, in new directions, mainly uh, television and movies. Uh, but in terms of Spider-Man, um, if you look at the creator credits of these issues, starting with issue Amazing Spider-Man number 101, up until basically the death of Gwen Stacy, which was Amazing Spider-Man number 121, I mean, this is like, it is a rotating, revolving door of creators. So uh, let's let's throw a couple names out here. Of course, we, we had Stan Lee because he left at 100, but then was back again for a couple issues. But like they felt like inventory stories. Uh, in terms of artists, we had Gil Kane. Then we had Roy Thomas, who wrote a few issues. We had uh, Frank uh, Giacoa who was uh, inking. We had John Romita Sr., who was uh, penciling again and inking. Uh, then eventually Jerry Conway was writing some issues. We had Jim Mooney as an inker. And then we had Tony Mortallardo, who was also an inker in additional art. I mean, Dan, like, you know, I know that this day and age in comics, it's not unusual to not have a consistent 
writer artist combo to last 50, 60 issues like we did back in the 1960s, at least. Um, but, you know, coming out of the Lee Dicko era and the Lee Ramita era, I mean, this was this was pretty drastic, right? Well, what's so interesting about it, too, is not like they they finished like little stories and moved on. You would get art changes in the middle of a story or even in the middle of an issue. And suddenly you have, you know, like Ramita aiding another uh, artist or inking another artist. And it, it feels very piecemeal. It's like, who can we get to plug in this hole, you know, here and there? You know, we've got the reprints of the Spectacular Spider-Man magazine, but then Stan Lee wasn't rewriting that. Jerry Conway was rewriting that. And so it's like, it's an all-hands-on-deck kind of thing. It's like the gaping hole that is Stan Lee suddenly made itself very apparent. Yeah, I mean, and it's just so funny, again, to be kind of thinking about it in terms of now versus then terms, because, like, you know, we had, you know, we just... In terms of the current Spider-Man book, we had Dan Slott writing the book for the last 10 years and like, you know, the idea of Nick Spencer taking over. I mean, it was kind of like this long percolated transition, like who's going to get it next? And then when they finally announced it, it took a few months and and then Spencer took over and now he's kind of putting it in his direction and putting his stamp on it. That was not what was going on here, Dan. I mean, basically, as, as our interview with Roy Thomas revealed, you know, Stan was desperate to get out from behind the desk. He wanted to do his own thing to kind of push his Marvel properties in new directions. Uh, and Roy Thomas kind of like draw the straw, the short straw. Uh, he, he didn't even want Spider-Man. He wanted to write Fantastic Four, which was kind of at that point still the flagship book of Marvel in terms of the superhero books. Uh, so Roy Thomas takes over in literally in the middle of a story where Peter Parker grows six arms, and then it's like, here, go, Roy Thomas. Uh, Roy also becomes the editor-in-chief, and it wasn't like there was some kind of transition set up. He he, he just kind of did it, and it, it just boggles the mind. I mean, Spider-Man is at least... You know, if you were if we're going to talk fairly in terms of the late of the early seventies, the second most popular Marvel property. I mean, but like you know, for the most part, it's it's one of the flagship books of Marvel, and they just had no idea from month to month what was going to happen <laughs> and who was going to guide it. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable that he was left with six arms when he took over. You know, like without any idea of how that story will resolve itself. It reminds me of like how Daredevil has been handled over the years, which is like. Every time a new writer comes on Daredevil, the previous writer puts Daredevil in like the worst situation ever, yeah. you know, like, and, and so it's up to the next writer to solve it, right? That's yeah. the kind of ongoing motif with Daredevil comics. I, I feel like, I mean, we haven't done this for 50 years, but I feel like we should now say like every time a new Spider-Man writer comes on, he should get a new power or grow new limbs and the other person has to solve it. And, right, uh, right. And, and the way that Thomas solves it is by creating Morbius, the living vampire. Of course, that's what you would do. Right, right. Um, now, of course, you know, the creation of Morbius was a direct result of kind of the, the loosening of the comic code and their authority. You know, we talked about this in season two with, with, the, with the Amazing Spider-Man uh, drug issues with Harry Osborn by kind of loosening the standards of the comics authority it, it allowed marvel and the and both of the big two to kind of explore the occult again and 
you know, Roy Thomas and, and, and company, I mean, they immediately went for, let's create a vampire type character, but it wasn't truly a vampire. It was, you know, someone who had vampiric abilities and appearances based on science. So there was your, <laughs> there was your gray area, I guess. Um, I never loved the title living vampire. I just found that very odd. I yeah, don't know what yeah. that means. What does it yeah. mean that he's living? Yeah. And I mean, you know, Dan, I mean, this is no time like the present. I mean, Morbius, I feel like over time is, has created this. He's been a, you know, he's a bit of a cult character. I mean, he's he's appeared in Spider-Man off and on. He's appeared in other books, mainly like some of the especially in the Bronze Age, uh, like Doctor Strange and uh, some of the like Blade and some of the monster books that Marvel was putting out during this era. Uh, he was, of course, a character of Maximum Carnage, uh, one of the you know one of the big crossovers. He had his own solo series. Uh, what was that about seven or eight years ago? He you know did you read six. that? Oh my I, god, it was I so bad. Few, yeah, it was not a great it, it was not a great series, but I did read a few issues of it, and it's always kind of had this connection. I felt like to the Spider Man universe, but like, is Morbius a Spider Man character? I mean, like, like is there really any like? Outside of the fact that he first appeared in Spider-Man, like, you know, what's the connection there for you? Do you have any kind of affinity for this character because of his linkage here? I mean, he seems very discordant with Spider-Man, and I think that's how I feel about it. I'm like, I don't really care for him all that much. But, like, I do like this kind of dynamic that's been established between Spider-Man and Morbius over the years, which is, like, every time they meet up, even if Morbius is trying to do good Spider-Man misunderstands him and beats him up. Like, that's just kind of the rapport they've established, especially in the slot run, where, like, he was legitimately trying to do good, and Spider-Man is, like, thwarting him constantly, if you believe that kind of thing. But, like, I think it's, like, the characters know they don't belong together, and so the writers always pit them against each other. Right, right. It It just seems to me that, for the most part, Morbius was a character that Roy Thomas wanted to use, and it so happened that Roy Thomas was writing Spider-Man in 1972 or 73, whenever this happened. Uh, I I would have to imagine that Morbius might have been a Fantastic Four character if that's what Thomas was doing. You know what I mean? There's nothing about Morbius outside of being a man of science, but again, like Fantastic Four certainly had man men of science in it so i there's to me there's just nothing nearly there there outside of the fact that it just so happened he appeared in, a, in an issue of spider-man he's like kind of like a poor man's lizard yes yes but we and, and the lizard shows up in this story as well for what it's worth so yeah that's it, true so there you go so you know again like we're not we're not getting much and like i don't feel like morbius adds much to the resolution of this story the six-armed saga story which again while we're ta- while we're here, let's talk about this, Dan. I mean, we've we've alluded to this in some of our other episodes, but you know, of the centennial issues of Spider Man, this is not one of the finer ones, right? <laughs> no, I'm not a big fan of it. It, it I mean, it, it feels like the six arms was come up came up as a conceit, you know, as a shocking ending, but they never do anything with it other than that weird juggling sequence. <laughs> Which right. is just odd to think about, where Spider-Man just decide, decides he can juggle with his six arms now. Which okay, right? I, not that difficult. I, I don't. I don't really think so, especially with his spider sense. Um, 
Although I guess like it's become so iconic as a visual, right? There's like toys with six arms. He shows up in like various animated series. This kind of man spider thing. But we've never really revisited this exact visual again, despite its like kind of notoriety and being in a centennial issue. The only time I could think of was uh, What If Volume 2, number 42, where it's like, what if Spider-Man kept his six arms? But, like, every time we revisit, like, Spider-Man becoming a spider, it takes on a different visual and, and never this. And I guess that's curious to me considering, you know, we've so often uh, see this visual in, like, games and other adaptations. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it, it kind of has a legacy, but like when you, when you actually think of its origins, I mean, it's really just a reinvention of the wheel here. I mean, like we're we're dealing with a couple of elements that bring us to this point. You know, the first is kind of the real origins of it is a, is a kind of a Spider-Man No More scenario. It's it's Peter Peter wants to basically lose his powers in this story because you know, he's tired of not being able to hang out with Gwen and, you know, the, the trials and burdens of being Spider-Man. So he takes the serum to strip himself of his powers and then, oops, he becomes a spider or, 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 or <laughs> you know, a variation of a spider. And then it's kind of like the other variation, which we played with, uh, you know, th- thinking of like certainly like the Mysteri- the Madness of Mysterio story uh, from the Romita era. It's kind of like this. Like, well, now that he has these extra appendages, it's like, well, he's got to, like, do something to figure it out or it's going to, like, reveal to the world or more specifically, like, Gwen that he's he's this freak of sorts. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you're like, like, this, <laughs> like, that's kind of the drama driving this story. It's like, oh, God, I can't have Gwen see me with six arms, you know? Like, <laughs> I mean, maybe she'd like that. I don't know. <laughs> I can see some benefits. I, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, right, so Roy resolves that, and then, you know, we launch into a, a multi-part series of Spider-Man going to the Savage Land because when you take over a book like Spider-Man, you know the first thing you got to do is go to the Savage Land with Craven and Kazar of all people showing up and you get some of this creepiness where like JJ goes along and decides to bring Gwen and we get Gwen in a bikini and it's creepy and weird and like clear that Roy Thomas did not want to write Spider-Man. Like right. I can think of no less Spider-Man-y book than the three issues we got uh, in the Savage Land fighting the giant alien Gog. I mean, right. it is b- truly bizarre. If you haven't read these issues, like I mean, I would say you could skip them. But if you want to see the spectacle that is Gog. Go for it. Although, I mean, before we get into Gog, though, I do want to point out, like, wasn't there a Spider-Man X-Men series from a few years ago where, like, the first few issues were like Spider-Man and the Savage Land with Sauron or something like that? And I was just like, what the heck is happening here? Why am I reading this on a Spider-Man book? (laughs) I I can tell you I'm the foremost expert on those issues because I have mistakenly read that whole series three times now. I, God bless you. I don't know, man. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to talk about it anyway. So let's talk about those issues. Yes. These are, these are highly forgettable issues, except like the situation with Spider-Man and Gog is, 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 I mean, 
pun intended, kind of leaves me agog, Dan. <laughs> I knew I knew one of us would get there. <laughs> I'm glad it was you and not me. Okay, well, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll gladly fall on the dad joke sword here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I reread these issues like just to prepare for this and posted on Twitter that like, oh my gosh. Like I had forgotten that Spider-Man straight up murders Gog, and <laughs> and lest you forget that uh, Gog is like you're like oh he's an alien maybe he's like of just a brutish character he's like an animal he never talks so you're like okay maybe Spider-Man killing him isn't that bad but Spider-Man before killing him spells out like that he has sympathy for him and that he's an intelligent creature. If only to, like, further let him just die in quicksand. Right, right. Although I I would like to point out, Dan, that apparently Gog does reappear uh, a few months later in an issue of Astonishing Tales. So don't weep too much for Gog. Okay, we we got an out there. We got an but out that doesn't, there. That doesn't change the fact that Spider Man murders him, but <laughs> intentionally, intentionally, right, right, yeah. right, very much so. I mean, he, he he literally sets a trap, and when God goes into the quicksand, he's kind of like, well, I didn't want to do it, but whatever. <laughs> I, mean, I could what... save him, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to chalk this one up to Roy not really understanding the character. Yeah, I, but like, I mean, again, this is this is still we're not in the in the total throes of the Bronze Age here in terms of like the darker tone. So, I mean, are there any Marvel heroes that would murder a villain? I I, I mean, <laughs> like it's 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 just very stunning that 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 it's so cavalier in this issue. It does go out of its way to make it murder. It's pretty. You're right. It is. It is un unusual. Yeah, I mean, we don't have we don't have Wolverine yet. We, I mean, you know, we don't have Daredevil going full Frank Miller yet. So it's kind of like, what's going on here? <laughs> is this officially the first murder that he does? I mean, like I I was thinking about the annual number five where he redirects a missile into the guy's car, but in that case, you could chalk that one up to maybe self defense. This is just outright cold blooded killing. I mean, you're picking nits, but I mean, I would say this is certainly the first intentional murder. Anything else that appeared previously was was inadvertent, I would say. There was nothing that seemed powered by intent. So <laughs> I don't know. I mean, and it's uh, I, and, and to waste that on uh, alien named Gog is kind of even more stunning. I mean, like, you know, we would fast forward years later in that Spider-Man versus Wolverine uh, one shot with Jim Owsley slash Christopher Priest who wrote it. And it was kind of stunning when Spider-Man punches Charlie and kills her. Uh, not th- Again, that wasn't intentional, but like he, he, he certainly he, he thought it was Wolverine and he punched the person hard enough to leave a mark for certain, thinking it was going to be Wolverine and he ends up killing somebody. And that was considered such a watershed moment for Spider-Man and the character, uh, whereas here it's it's like totally forgettable, and we just kind of move on from it and brush ourselves off, and you're kind of like, wow, like to to use that as like the moment for Spider-Man to kill somebody, like is this canon or what? I don't. Even, I mean, have we ever heard about Spider-Man killing Gog in a Spider-Man comic again? 
I'm trying to think if he showed up in that Spider-Man the, the no one dies issue. That would be this giant alien standing over everybody. That's a total missed opportunity by slot. Come on. All right, moving on then. Just like this comic did. So then Stan Lee returns to the book and we get this three-part kind of i feel this is an inventory-ish stop story like i there there's uh, prove to me that this story was not written like a year before this story was published right about the spider yeah, slayers no, you're right yeah i mean there's this there's nothing about like like to me this was like stan had this story kind of ready to go and you know roy thomas was done didn't want to be doing this book anymore so they they did this two-parter about the spider slayers so um and then, and that brings us to another stand story, which is a kind of Flash Thompson sorted Vietnam War history, which also introduces uh, Shashan, which was Flash's Vietnamese girlfriend, an ex-wife, an ex-wife. So, okay, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a pain in the neck here and a total like comic book nerd here, uh, which is you know par for the course, I guess, for the show. But um, so. This this is where like the whole canon and continuity really throws me because so Flash meets Shashan in the Vietnam War and and you know dates marries her etc but then they break up you know I think there's even like isn't there an even insinuation that Flash is beating Shashan later on like years yes, later Yes absolutely he does Okay so 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 and then, but like, okay, we fast forward to like the 2000s, like the brand new day era, and now all of a sudden Flash is in Iraq and loses his legs. So like, what happened to Vietnam? <laughs> My whole understanding of that is that, and this is getting really nerdy, is that like the sliding timeline or whatever, he went to both Vietnam and Iraq, and he was just in, still enlisted in the service. And somehow he's this timeless, ageless soldier uh, you know, because the only time that passed in the Marvel Universe was the time between uh, ni- 1942 and 1963. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. So we're, we're only dealing on cap time here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so we find out that Flash, while he was in Vietnam, met Shish- this priestess Shashan and her father, who is the Holy One. Um, which I think is it's odd considering that Shashan would go on to be such a you know a long lasting character that her father is some kind of weird deity, right? Um, right. But uh, yeah, so he comes back and like he's kind of shell shocked, and it reintroduces Flash back into uh, the continuity, which is kind of like an interesting thing because we're talking about the Bronze Age and and characters growing up a little bit. I mean, Flash does. There's a lot of pushes to change his character, like to make him more friendly with Peter, and that he is like kind of suffering with some kind of PTSD, uh, you know, focused around these two people, the Holy One and Shashan, and his regrets over allowing them to be killed. Or, well, not his regrets. He tries to save them, but they're killed nevertheless, and then they end up to be not dead. But yeah, I mean, the Holy One would eventually die in that Razorback story. Well, another one of your another one of your favorites. <laughs> I love that story. It's so yeah. bonkers. Yeah, it is interesting to me. You know, trying to find a silver lining to this run of issues here. That, like, I mean, to me, this is probably the first time where the idea of war is truly present in Spider Man. I mean, like, we prior to this, we had like protesting, but kind of like 
it's a very generic concept of protesting, you know, but this, like you said, this is very specific. Uh, we're, we're talking about Vietnam here and the, the traumatic effects of Vietnam on those who served and kind of them coming back and not being feeling welcomed or, or feeling a part of the community and, and Stan in his own kind of both in your face, but still safe kind of way does address that here. So, and I, and I do feel that this like has serviced the flash character, whether we want to like pick nits over continuity and timeline and the sliding scale of time and him being in Iraq, him being in Vietnam. I mean, like this is a part of the biography that I feel has kind of stuck with the character for, for years to come. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that you mentioned the kind of like social implications of this because the minute Stan comes back on this book after being gone, you can feel the kind of like social struggles reappear. I mean, he even brings back the protesting characters, from you know the uh, you know the crisis on campus issues uh, to protest again in these issues, so you get the re the reappearance of like Robbie and Randy and and that whole you know gang of characters. Um, so like to me during this this like twenty issue run we're talking about, like every time Stan shows up, you get like oh this is the heart of Spider Man again, and th- at the heart of Spider Man are societal issues in this case Flash. To top it off, you were in doing some research for this episode, Dan. You found some fun things about John Romita Sr. in these issues, which I had never known. So why don't you share that? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I was listening to an interview with uh, Romita, and uh, in the interview, he says that um, when asked, like, what his favorite Spider-Man issues he ever drew were, he says, you know, it might be unconventional, but my favorite ones are Amazing Spider-Man 108 and 109, which are the story we're talking about with Shashan and Flash. And the reason he gives is because, you know, not because of the content of the issue, but because of how hard he pushed himself as an artist. And if you read these two issues and you know that, it's, it really becomes clear because there's a lot of, like, explosions and smoke. And when they go into these kind of, like, dens uh, of this kind of, like, gang, there's all these, like, curtains on the wall that are incredibly detailed. Um, you can really see how much he put into this uh, issue um, and it's hard to disagree with like his ultimate point. Like, I would buy the, like the large page version of this. I don't have a ton of affinity for this issue, but like it is Romita operating really at the top of his game. Absolutely. And, and the other thing that's kind of interesting about these issues is, you know, like you know, we were kind of talking about the fact that this book has been in a slump now for the last couple of months. But like you could tell that there are some seeds being planted to try and change things up a little bit so like first there's this idea of there kind of being a, a, a love triangle of sorts between uh peter flash and gwen you know gwen is kind of secretly doting on flash coming home and you know with his ptsd and peter is jealous of that um but you know it kind of ends up being a, a you know a misunderstanding for the most part but like you know again we're just trying to kind of introduce some tension into the Peter and Gwen that had not existed outside of the fact that Peter is Spider-Man like that was always kind of the overlying tension of like oh you know when will I ever come clean to her and she cuz she kind of forgives him for you know or not she doesn't forgive Peter but she kind of forgives Spider-Man in her father's death at this point yeah, so like I mean, this this does kind of add a new wrinkle to the Peter and Gwen dynamic. Although clearly, a bigger wrinkle was to come. Um, but then also, 
We have like kind of Gwen fighting with Aunt May uh, for doting and treating Peter like such a little baby, a little boy, uh, so to speak. So like, you know, these these are kind of in a vacuum. They're kind of throwaway moments. But like you can see in the context of what was to come on these issues that they're the people at Marvel, they're trying to throw this book up a little bit and, and do something different, but they just weren't clicking on it yet. Well, you know, I found something interesting about this issue, but you found something interesting about this issue too. Do you want to tell everybody about it? Oh, well, I mean, just, just a little um, kind of fun factoid in terms of Spider-Man history here. There, there is actually in the, in the letters page, there is a fan letter from David Michelinie, a.k.a. future writer of Spider-Man and writer of Amazing Spider-Man number 300, my personal favorite issue. And he's complaining about Marvel's prices, of all things. Uh, Quote, unquote, when you stop to consider that your major competitor is giving the public half again as many pages for a mere nickel, more one has to wonder at your economic policies. That sounds a lot like the David Michelinie we had on this show. I don't know. What do you think? I love it. He's nickel and diamond and Marvel. Like, uh, what an auspicious debut. Right. So we go from David Michelinie to what I believe to be the last official Stan Lee scripted issue of Amazing Spider-Man, which is uh, the first part of an unforgettable two-parter that introduces us <laughs> to a brand new villain that would just have seismic implications on the Spider-Man universe. And of course, that villain is the Gibbon. <laughs> Martin Blank. Who could forget? He kind of swings around like a monkey. So let's call him a Gibbon, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because his face looked like a Gibbon, too. Like, he, people were humiliating him. And there's this kind of, like... Uh, the best scene in all of this is when, like, he confronts Spider-Man and Spider-Man's kind of like, that's a silly costume, but you seem like an okay guy. And he's like, how dare you call me silly? And that's his villain motivation. It's just he doesn't like to be humiliated, um, which I guess I, I understand to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, we do have um, yet again kind of like that that Spider-Man no more-ish type of motif going on here where – you know he's he 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 kind of Spidey Peter kind of quits being Spider-Man to to find his Aunt May, uh, and, and will you describe the scene, Dan? Because <laughs> I feel like you might have you you read it more recently than I have. <laughs> yeah, so like Aunt May goes missing after Gwen yells at her for doting on Peter, right? So she just leaves like this cryptic note and disappears, which is so Aunt May like. And this is like Jerry Conway's first official like issue on the book. So he clearly has some kind of affinity for Amazing Spider-Man 50, which I think when he was on the show told us it was his favorite Spider-Man story. Do you remember yes. something like that? Uh, well, that and, that and the Crime Master saga from the Dicko run are like among his all-time favorites. So, yes. Yeah. So he's doing that again, except it's like kind of weirdly bungled because, you know, Spider-Man is like looking for his Aunt May. And at some point he's like, why am I bothering stopping all this crime in the city? When I need to find my aunt. So he literally is swinging around town and he sees this like, you know, because this is what New York is like. You see this mobster hanging out the window with a gun to the head of a bookie. And it's like basically challenging Spider-Man, like, come and stop me. You know, and Spider-Man's like, he literally says, I can't win. I just can't win. If I butt out, 
they'll kidnap that poor slob. Yet if I get involved, it may take me hours, hours I could spend searching for Aunt May. And then he just pieces out. <laughs> he leaves this bookie with a gun pointed to his head, and we never find out what happens to that bookie. And it's to me, it's like the the moment. It's it's unlike any other moment in Spider Man. Like he just decides, I'm not going to save this guy. Right, right. Like Jerry Conway, what a, what a what a crazy way to debut on this book. Although I will say, in Jerry Conway's defense, beyond that moment, he really is incredible at capturing Stan Lee's dialogue. It's seamless. Like it seems a little more mature in some ways and more detailed. But like, if you didn't know it was Jerry Conway, you might not have ever noticed that the book changed hands. Right. But um, just to kind of sidebar off that for a second, and again, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about like the transition to Roy Thomas, like I want us to stop and think about this again, kind of in modern context. That so Jerry Conway at this point, and I mean, you know, we love Jerry. He's a friend of the show. He's written some of the greatest comics involving Spider-Man of all time, and but, still is, and still is. Uh, so this is not a knock on him, but again, like consider the context here. Jerry Conway, at this point in time, is a 19-year-old kid who freelanced a little for Marvel and DC. And he is getting handed, like, like he became the guy on Amazing Spider-Man, in part because Roy Thomas didn't want to do it, and Stan wanted to move on. So he becomes the guy on Spider-Man, kind of almost sight unseen. I mean, he had obviously some credits to his name. It wasn't like he was completely green. But, like, you know, one of Marvel's biggest properties is given to someone who, you know, well, in that time he could get a drink, but (laughs) today couldn't get a drink. Um, I mean, to me, that's just wild. Like, like, could you imagine if, like, we're waiting, like, well, who's going to take over for Dan Slott? It's some teenager that we never heard of before. <laughs> like, 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 what? <laughs> well, not only that, but he was also writing Marvel Team Up as well, alongside the book. Right, right. I mean, it's just it's unreal to me that that Spider Man of all properties would get handed to a complete newcomer like this, uh, who who you know, and, and I think even Jerry would admit in retrospect that. Uh, you know, with with time and age and experience that his writing became much more polished and significant. I think Jerry kind of likes some of the stories he did on Spider-Man later on uh, when he was doing like Spectacular and Web of, Web of in the 80s and what he did in the 70s here. But putting that all aside, I mean, it's just it's such it's such a gamble. And yet it just kind of works because it had to work back then. I, I mean, that just that blows my mind when thinking about it. I mean, then you, then you, you know, we'll get to it. But then you imagine that that nineteen-year-old kid completely upends the industry, and and changes everything as we know it. You know, in 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 Spider-Man, like just a few issues after getting the book, it's 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 phenomenal. I mean, like what a story, and like the kind of thing that could only have happened in in that era. Uh, I mean, I. I'm trying to imagine what kind of wonderkind you'd have to have. It would have to be, I don't even know, like, who you would have to be to get a book like that at that age. You would have to have written, like, Aragon or whatever and and, <laughs> and, and, and even then kind of kept going. I, right. I don't know. 
Right. But I think like to to what you were saying just before, Dan, I mean, part of what made it work was Jerry had a, an uncanny knack of capturing the Stanley spirit on this book. And like also when you look at his first few stories, putting aside the Gibbon, you know, we had a, a multi-parter gang war story involving Doc Ock that introduced us to Hammerhead. And we, we could talk about we, we will talk about Hammerhead's origins later on this series. Guarantee you that's can't miss podcasting. Uh, history here talking about hammerhead <laughs> um but but like i mean it's 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 a story in the vein of the other one of of jerry's favorite stories that i just mentioned which was like the crime master story this idea of the gang war i mean that was a, like the street level thug villain type that that has kind of always been an overarching theme in spider-man books jerry kind of captured in on that and even in how he wrote doc ock he actually uh, kind of took off from Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number One and played a lot with the Doc Ock Aunt May relationship, which I mean is has become fodder for the book years later. <laughs> Whether we want to or not. I'm thinking of uh, was it was it six ninety nine or seven hundred where Peter is having visions of Doc Ock as Spider-Man or whatever. I mean, it's just an Aunt May. It's just not pretty. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's in pretty incredible. It, like. It, it, it seems like, like Jerry Conway was almost like Dan Slott before his time. It feels like a fan like truly was given this book because he's digging into minutiae that the book hadn't revisited in so long, you know? Like, that's what's incredible about it. It seems seamless, but it's also, like, I think, like, even more intricate than it was before. You've got all these different avenues of Peter's life crossing over in ways that they hadn't. Even just the end of that one... You know the the gang where she were uh, you know Doctor Octopus makes his, his dramatic appearance is one of the most spectacular moments in Amazing Spider-Man history of this kind of terror of the slow reveal of that Doctor Octopus is involved. I mean, to think it's coming from a 19 year old who was a, just a fan a few years earlier was is it's incredible. It really is. Right, um, but then of course like you know Jerry is kind of getting the ball rolling and then immediately kind of gets tasked with repackaging an old an old story which again this is just reflects where this book was so like amazing spider-man's number 116 to 118 is a adaptation of the spectacular spider-man magazine number one that uh you and i talked about in season two uh it was a black and white issue then this was kind of uh, spread out across three issues in color here, and Jerry even talked a little bit about the uh, in that ish, in that episode that we did about the challenges of adapting this. But again, it's it's kind of weird that like this is what we're doing with the main flagship book of Spider Man here. It's it's we're we're literally repurposing stories. They're, they're, this book just feels very odd and aimless, which you couldn't get away with today, right? And then you know just to just to take it even further is the next few issues send Spider-Man to Canada, right? So we're, we're leaving New York altogether. Um, so Peter gets this note, this telegram uh, for, uh, that's addressed to Aunt May, who's currently missing. And it's from this guy, Jean-Pierre Rimbaud, who s- stresses a meeting between him and Aunt May, but like what he has to tell her can't be written down. So Peter like tricks JJJ into sending him to Canada to cover like the Hulk who's rampaging up there. So we get this... I guess, dramatic third appearance of Hulk in Spider-Man comics. But it really is like the first true Spider-Man versus the Hulk mano-a-mano fight. Although I guess the army is also there. Uh, right. 
you know, because you've got like you know uh, General Ross storming into town. But it is like the the first issue of this with John Romita Senior's pencils is incredible. I mean, you yeah. get some really like larger than life action in this. And then of course he gets replaced by Gil Kane in the next one, which is like not a knock against Gil Kane, but he can't go up against the visuals from John Romita Senior. Um, so you've got Peter out of town. It just and again. It's not that it's like inventory. It is continuing Jerry Conway's story with the Aunt May thing, but it just seems like okay. And then this is the next random thing that right. we're going to do with the character. Right, right. And uh, just again to be tangential here for a second, I just want to say, as a collector, I always had a hard time. I had a hard time finding issue one nineteen. Did you? Did you have any uh, experiences with that, Dan, uh, or finding a decent copy of it that wasn't overpriced? I don't remember that specifically, although I don't remember them coming necessarily easy. What what made it so hard for you? Do you know? I I just remember it being very overpriced. Like I I you know because for the most part, there's nothing. I mean, yes, it's it's a it's a first kind of mano a mano with the Hulk, but you know, considering what's to come two issues later, there's nothing that significant about these issues from a historic standpoint. And I just remember I would go to shows or go to conventions. And like this would always be one of those issues, like the the up on the wall issues, you know, not the in the in the in a long box issue, and like you know, people would would want like a hundred bucks for it, and I'd be like, I'm not paying that for this comic. Come on, like you know, and I I, I forgot where I eventually found it, but it, I did not pay up on the wall prices. I paid flipping through a box prices for it but it took a lot of patience to get that get it i mean it was not i guess because it was spider-man and hulk people kind of hyped it more and thought there was more to it than that you know (laughs) yeah and i i I get it i mean there what there's amazing spider-man 14 which you know they fight but not that significantly and then there's asm annual number three where they do a mono imano fight but it kind of ends in like a draw, and I guess this one ends in a draw too. But I think maybe it's just the genre. Me to senior pencils are that good that people feel like this is the issue to mark up, or it's just the cover. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's a nice cover. I mean it's it's very clear on the from the cover that it's Spider Man versus Hulk. Uh, you know, there's always reasons, but like yeah, I I just again as a collector, I always found that finding. Kind of the you know something that checked all the boxes for me as a collector was difficult, um, which just annoyed me for whatever reason. But um, yeah, I mean, like, but you know, it was at this point in time with Jerry Conway, where you know he was having conversations with John Romita Sr. and with Roy Thomas, and uh, basically said, "We got to shake this book up. We got to do something. Maybe we can kill a character." That was kind of the leading point. I don't know, Dan. Do you, do you think they ever truly executed on that? Did they shake the book up? I guess we're going to find out um, <laughs> re- relatively soon. Um, you know, I, before we close this out, because we've reached the end of all the issues we we're going to talk about um, on this episode, you know, um, speaking of like shakiness, like, d- do you think that the kind of like relative shakiness of these issues? Suggest that the book needed a shakeup, and that the Silver Age uh, of comics was coming to a close all on its own. Like it had just reached a point where, like, it had to change. Like whether it was Jerry Conway who did it himself, like, was the book building to this? Like, was there some kind of inevitability to all of this? 
Yeah, I, I, I think it's more the latter in terms of the inevitability. I think that, like, the, the, the way that comic book stories were being told was just not going to fly anymore. Like, it, 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 like there's there was just an aimlessness to it, and and I, I feel that when you look back at these issues specifically, like we're just exhausting all of the same old themes and ideas and storylines, just kind of putting a new coat of paint on it. And that, you know, the, the, the commencement of the bronze age, I I mean, I don't feel like, I mean, you know, people talk about the death of Gwen Stacy as being the dawn of the bronze age. And you could, I, I don't know if it's that quite definitive, like, you know, BC versus AD kind of a thing. But, um, like to me, it, it like the death of Gwen ends up embodying just the 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 risk and and the unpredictability of the Bronze Age. Whereas like everything that came before that, there was a predict certain level of predictability to it. Uh, these issues are generally predictable. Everything that we've talked about, outside of Spider Man murdering a session bean uh <laughs> that was pretty unpredictable uh, <laughs> do we but, do we do we think that stan lee kind of artificially um made that era of comics last longer than it should by the sheer power of his writing alone like did we did he, did his exit from this book indicate like you know an, an exit from comics for a while just basically say like this writer is irreplaceable and other writers are just going to have to shake it up in order to match that level of, of attraction in, in the pages of these books. I don't even know if it's, if it's quite that level. I think it was just more that I think people just were grew content and, and, and with what, how comics were being told and Stan did it a certain way and it was working. So why change? But, um, Stan leaving kind of, you know, bringing new people in to kind of try and continue the Stan model, I think, you know, allowed people to understand, oh, wow, wait, no, I'm not Stan Lee. (laughs) You know what I mean? Maybe maybe I need to do something differently. I think that's kind of where it came from. I mean, Stan was just on such autopilot, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but like, I mean, he just had everything set up. In terms of how these books churned out, he, ha- he had to. There was how many books that Marvel was doing at this point um, that he had a hand in. So I-, I-, I think taking Stan out of it and kind of realizing that, you know, that you would need like six stands to do what, what they were trying to do at this point necessitated the idea of, of, of change. Well, that's a really great point, And that's going to lead us to our next episode. So, Mark, why don't you bring us home? Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you, of course, for joining us for this first episode of our third season of the all-news Amazing Spider Talk. Uh, Dan, uh, our next episode will be out in a few weeks. And what's going to be the title of that? Yeah, well, it's going to be called, I'm, I'm sure you can guess, it's going to be called The Bronze Age. We'll be sitting down with none other than Jerry Conway, again, our good friend Jerry Conway, to discuss... He's getting frequent flyer miles on this show, Dan. <laughs> yeah, I know. We need to send him like a fruitcake or something like that. <laughs> yeah, we're going to sit down with Jerry again to discuss his role in the industry's transition to the Bronze Age, what that meant for comics. Like, what is the Bronze Age? What does that mean? And then, like Mark alluded to, why you know Jerry feels like his story, The Death of Gwen, is given so much credit for that change. 
Uh, also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 13, also known Legacy number 814. Uh, there's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than to join us for our exciting coverage of this new run. Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, Swarm B-Book reviews, extended interviews, uh, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you can get access to some awesome commission artwork. Dan, we just sent out the Steve Lieber artwork. And who's going to do our next piece? Yeah, I'm really excited to announce that our next piece is going to be commemorating this transition to the Bronze Age by showcasing another viewpoint on the death of Gwen Stacy. And Mark, you and I had such a great time talking to Barry Kitson at Terrificon for our 200th episode that we asked him to do our next commission. So that's amazing Spider-Man artist Barry Kitson from the Brand New Day era and his awesome work, especially on that chameleon issue. So get ready for his own rendition on the death of Gwen Stacy. I'm really excited to see what it turns out to be. Yeah, that's super exciting. That's a great and, and Barry was such a great guest on this show, so I'm really excited that he's on board to do this, Dan. Yeah, me too. And on that note, also be sure to check out our sister show, The Untold Talks of Spider-Man, where they just wrapped up their extensive coverage of hashtag Spider-Geddon. Ooh. Is it quite like Spider-Verse, Dan? <laughs> Into the Spider-Verse? <laughs> it's exactly like Spider-Verse, just not like the movie. Yeah, okay. I gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Plus, we've also got our amazing Spider-Slack community for you to join, which actually got a bunch of new members this week. It's a new year, and people are deciding to jump on the Slack. So check out the episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community and join up with all the new people. I mean, it's a new era. We're in the Bronze Age. Maybe all you old-timers can come and jump on the Slack. Nice. Get on the Slack, people. All right, Dan. So uh, where can we find you on the uh, World Wide Web? Yeah, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk, where you can read all of my writing about Into the Spider-Verse or any of the comics that I'm reading. I've always got some exciting things going on. How about you, Mark? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog. Uh, and, of course... Uh, I will be plugging this until the day I die. Uh, my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die by Triumph Publishing. Uh, and you can open up that book. And uh, one of the first chapters in it is all about Uncle Ben's famous motto, which we like to commemorate on our show, Mark. What does he say? Yes, of course. Uncle Ben in the pages of Amazing, Fan- Amazing Fantasy 15 said to everyone, with great podcast must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next